Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 50. I titled this morning's message, A Tree is Known by Its Fruit. And we, we started this chapter, I, I talked a lot about, uh, over the last few weeks, about the opposition that Jesus was now beginning to experience in his ministry. Uh, he had his years of popularity, and now he is moving into another time in his ministry that is uh, uh, some time of opposition. And that's where we're at in Matthew's gospel right now. We know that when we started into this chapter 12, that the disciples and Jesus were walking through a grain field and they began to pluck the heads of the grain. But the problem was they were doing it on the Sabbath rest. That created a real problem for the Pharisees. And Jesus' response to them was, for the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. That was his response to these religious Pharisees that were really trying to catch him and catch the disciples as to why they would be working on the Sabbath. Jesus was also challenged in this chapter for healing somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to that was, Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus never was going to let people get in there and distort what the original intent of the Sabbath was. The Sabbath was made for man, and and God just wanted man to be able to rest. But they started bringing in all these other added legalities to it. And they began to distort what God intended it to be. There was also a man that was brought to Jesus in this chapter who was demon-possessed. He was blind and he was mute, and we're told that Jesus healed him. And when the Pharisees saw the crowd that was around when this took place, they stood there in amazement, and then they also responded to Jesus and to one another. Could this be the son of David? And the Pharisees, once again, standing by in that crowd about there, they, they had no other choice in this situation. They saw the miracle. They saw the amazement upon the faces of the people as he delivered this demonic and healed him. And they stood there and they thought, the only thing we can do is attribute this miracle to Satan. Satan must have done it. Satan used Jesus right now to perform this miracle. But Jesus, we're told, knowing their thoughts. This is always scary, isn't it? Jesus knows our thoughts. Without you even having to say anything, he knows what's going on in your heart, and he knows your thoughts. He knew the thoughts of these Pharisees, and he responded back, to them with words that would stop their mouths. Here's some of the words that he said in regards to this. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. He also said, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? He also said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, 
By whom do your sons cast them out? Asking a question. He says, therefore, they shall be your judges. He also told them, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus told them also that he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus, he, I mean, he put these Pharisees really in a predicament. They couldn't answer these things. We then finished with some of the most sobering words that these Pharisees could hear. This is what Jesus said to them. He says, Therefore, I say to you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. In other words, you could say things again. Even people in unbelief, that stand in unbelief, they can be forgiven by God. You can say the Lord's name in vain. You can say that in times past, and God could forgive you. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, these Pharisees were taking it to a different level. They were not only attributing Jesus' works to the work of Satan, but they were set in their hearts in unbelief. And Jesus knew that. We continue this morning with Jesus speaking to these Pharisees about the condition of their hearts. You see, with the Lord, that's always the most important thing in all of our lives here. Where's your heart? What's going on inside of you? What, 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 God sees our heart. And many times we want to mask our hearts with our actions, our outward actions, our good deeds, the things that we can do. By coming to church and putting on a big smile on our face or saying everything's good. And the Lord knows our hearts. He's most concerned with our hearts. Because he knows that if he can affect your heart, that your actions will follow. We're going to leave this section in Matthew 12 of a warning that Jesus gave to these Pharisees in verses 31 to 32 to an appeal that Jesus is going to make to them in verses 33 to verse 37. Look at your Bibles starting in verse 33. Jesus, these are Jesus' words, either make the tree good, now remember he's speaking to these Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Jesus, back in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 7, verse 15, he said some similar words to his disciples concerning false prophets. And he, we read this in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. 
Many times we have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and we have different groups come to our door. They come with a, what they call their gospel. They come as messengers of Jehovah. And by all outward, they look like religious people. There's lots of religious people in this world today that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, beware of these false prophets. They'll come to you as ravenous wolves. Why? Because it's destructive for somebody to hear a false gospel and to believe in that. But this is what Jesus says about them. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? The obvious answer is no. Or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. What kind of fruits are we talking about? I I believe that ultimately the fruit of God's love being manifested in the life of a Christian is one of the probably the greatest evidences that will affect your life, affect other people's lives. You'll know them by their love one for another. Jesus said that fruit is the evidence that a person really knows him. In the previous verses... The Pharisees had just accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's a big statement. In light of the fact that he just healed this blind man, he just set him free from being demon-possessed, and the people and the Pharisees knew it. And Jesus appeals to them here now this morning. Uh, But... Here, he, he doesn't want us to forget that his appeal was about good fruit and bad fruit. You see, here's the Pharisees standing before the Lord. They're the ones saying to our Lord, you just cast this demon out by the power of Satan. We need to judge between good fruit and bad fruit. The point is, for the tree is known by its fruit. That's the point that Jesus is making. He just did something good. He just healed a blind man and a mute man and and delivered him from a demon. Is that a good thing? Uh, Would somebody evil want to do that? No. Jesus says to them, and he goes on with some more harsh words. Look at your Bible, verse 34. You brood of vipers. Whenever I read those words in red letters. It always makes me think in my head, how did that sound? How did Jesus really say those words? You brood of vipers. Did he say it like that or you brood of vipers? I don't know. But some way he came across in a way that I believe that it was cutting. It was right. And as a matter of fact, what Jesus was really saying in this comment was, you offspring of vipers, or you generation of vipers. Remember, this is the same words that John the Baptist used when he was out preaching in the Jordan River there. And he was saying it also to the scribes and the Pharisees that were there on the bank of the Jordan. 
He also called them, you brood of vipers. Here, Jesus uses these same words to bring out the venomous nature of their words and what they had just said, attributing his deliverance of this man and this healing to the works of Satan himself. You brood of vipers. He goes on and he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? This is not really a question that Jesus is posing here as much as it is a statement. How can you, being evil, speak good things? What Jesus is saying is it's impossible for an evil person to speak good things. Somebody that's evil is not going to be flowing out good things coming out of his mouth. It's not going to flow out. It's not going to come forth. He goes on to affirm what he just said. Look at your Bibles. He says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of a good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's pretty straightforward. But it gets right to the point of the issue. It's, it's, he's talking and he's zeroing in on their hearts and the treasure of their heart or the room of their heart where these things dwell. You see... Words do mean something. The words that we speak, they mean something. As a matter of fact, the things that you say day in and day out, they actually speak volumes about your character as a person. It speaks something of you to other people about your character, about who you are. Uh, they can they can judge and monitor a little bit about something about you by the way you speak and the things that you say. Jesus implies that words are directly connected to your heart. The things that you say are really connected to your heart. If you if you just think of this channel that goes right from your tongue to your heart, it comes out of the storeroom of your heart the things that come off our lips. And it reflects in our character and who we are as Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 15, uh, looking ahead, in verse 10, he says, he said, when he had called the multitude to himself, keep in mind uh, that this multitude of people in uh, in this story here are also have some Pharisees that are always mixed in in the crowd. So here's Jesus calling this multitude of people to himself, and he says to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. Then Jesus' disciples came to Jesus, and they said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended 
when they heard you say this. The Pharisees were offended when they heard those words. And Jesus replied and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone, Jesus says to us. Let the Pharisees alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. That's how the Lord responded to them. And then Peter answered and he said to Jesus, explain this parable to us. And so Jesus said, are you also still without understanding, Peter? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Now, the thing is, those things come from the heart. It's what's in the heart of man that brings forth those actions. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. When a person's heart is not right before God, if, if, and it doesn't matter how religious you might appear on the outside, uh, that religion or that religiosity Though it may appear, it will never produce good fruit. It can't. Religion in itself does not produce fruit that God would accept. There's people that might accept it, but God will never accept that kind of fruit. Jesus says in verse 34 of our text, he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the abundance of our heart is filled with good things, consider your own heart right now. If the abundance of your heart is filled with good things, then you can expect that good things are going to come forth. It's just, it's, it's what will happen when our heart is filled with the good things of God. We're filling our minds and our, and our thought and everything from the Word of God and letting God work those things in our heart and changes inside, make us different. Then good things will come out of that changed heart. You can expect it. But if the abundance of the heart is evil treasure or it's an evil storeroom, we could say, then you would also expect that evil things will come forth out of that. That's the point that Jesus is making to these, to his disciples and to these Pharisees. It's that abundance. Just that word alone. Think about it. The abundance of your heart. What takes up the big portion of your heart? The, the abundance of good things or the abundance of evil things? You see, it, it's, it is all about our heart condition. And our heart condition is what will affect our words and it'll affect our actions. How we minister to our spouses. How we minister to our families. How we handle things at work. How we handle things when we're out driving a car. 
how we, you know, everything that we do in life, it affects our actions. If my heart is filled with bitterness and anger, you know, I'm probably going to have some road rage out on the, on the highway. I'm going to take it out on somebody because I'm just not happy in life. The abundance of the heart. James also wrote much about the tongue in chapter 3 of James. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because teachers talk a lot. And, and you know, a lot of that's coming out of their mouth, you're going to be judged even with a stricter judgment. Knowing that we shall receive this stricter judgment, he says, for we all stumble in many things, James says. If anyone does not stumble, though, in word... If you don't stumble, you may stumble in a lot of things, but if you do not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Now, perfect doesn't mean perfection. It just means maturity, that you are a mature man or woman able to bridle the whole body. Now, he's making a connection between the tongue and being able to bridle and control every aspect of your body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. This little tiny bit turns the big horse. This little tiny rudder on a huge ship steers a big ship. And he likens our tongue unto these things. He says, even so the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. See how great a force a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. How much damage have we done in our own personal lives with this little member, just with our tongue, let alone any other part of my member, but just with this, we create the most damage. That's what Jesus is warning them about. A person's heart reveals their character. Uh, Just like Tree, a, a tree that uh, bears fruit reveals what kind of a tree it is. You go out and you look at trees and you see all these you know, fruit trees out in a, a field and there's no fruit on it. You're wondering, what kind of tree is that? I don't know until I see fruit. When I see fruit, it reveals to me what kind of tree it is. It happened to me actually. I was over at Rinalda Gardens with my family one day and walking through there and I saw this tree and my daughter asked me, what kind of tree is that? I said, I think it's a fig tree. But that's all I could say. I think it's a fig tree because I've seen one before but there was no fruit on it. So I don't really know for sure but I think it's a fig tree. That's the way it is with us. People will know you by the fruit. No, you're a Christian. Yeah, I know that. I, I, I've seen their life. I, I, I observed. I watched. Yeah, I, I could testify. I really believe they're a Christian. But when people see us here at church differently than what they see of us when we're outside this building, 
That's when it's wrong. And there's lots of people in the world that go, yeah, okay, I know. They're no different than me. Yeah, they, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I can tell you this. They're no different than me. Not good fruit, not good testimony. We all have heard people say they're Christians, but in our minds, we really don't know for sure, do we? The only way that I really know, I, I walk up to somebody and I, and I start talking to them and they say they're a Christian. and You don't really know though, do you? Or somebody comes up and prays a sinner's prayer to receive Jesus Christ. You don't really, you don't really know. And the only way we really know is when we begin to see fruit come forth out of their life. It begins to be displayed and then we go, hi. I believe that's real. Look at their life. They're changing. Jesus, I believe, implies from this that it's also impossible for a sick tree to produce good and healthy fruit. Have you ever seen a sick tree? You know, half of it's all diseased and everything. It usually is, it's not producing good fruit. How do we stay healthy? How do we keep our hearts right? You know, we, we get into the Word, we let God's Word cleanse our hearts and our minds, and we let, we let the Holy Spirit have His way in our life. We receive the conviction that He, that he puts our way at times. We go, God, have your way in me. And our hearts begin to change when we just abide in Christ and we yield to Him. You will change, guaranteed, no doubt. Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's how he got there. He came and he, he took residence in your body, individually as a Christian, and you become the temple of the living God. The love of God has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why you're saved. That's why the Lord's going to raise you up someday, because his Spirit dwells in you. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said that the fruit of the Spirit is love. You could stop there for a moment. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then what comes out of that love is joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The other eight fruits come out of that one word, love. In other words, that is the byproduct of God's agape love that has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why don't I always see the fruit of the Spirit just being manifested in my life all the time, everywhere? Because of our flesh. Our flesh gets in the way. It keeps us and it hinders what God is ultimately wanting to do in our lives and through our lives. As we yield, as we confess, as we repent, then God comes in and and that love begins to become even greater and more fruit is more evident to people and even to ourselves. We often say things, as human beings, we say things off the cuff. Have you ever done that? <laughs> and, the, and then you, you kind of laugh it off. Or you just say, I'm, I was just kidding, just kidding. You know, you, you say some kind of a comment to your spouse. You say it to somebody, you know, I'm just kidding, you know, I really didn't mean it. And we probably have all done that at times. And we, we thought, man, I wish I could take back that word. I wish I could take back what I just said. 
uh, you know, because in a sense, I really did mean it. I said it in a, in a, in a way that was kind of meant to be fine, but I was meaning something behind it. See, those are the issues of our heart. Jesus, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, Jesus says. So let me ask us all a question, including myself this morning. What is our heart producing? What is the store of our heart producing, the abundance of our heart? The heart of a man is what Jesus wants to deal with. He wants that abundance to be things that are being placed there by him, that it's going to flow out of you. Abundance, when I think of abundance, I think of things that are overflowing out of a heart of abundance. That's the Lord in you and me. And we go, that's not me. That's all the Lord. That's not me. He then warned them again in verse 36 and 37. He says, but I say to you, and whenever you see the Lord make those words or say it like that, sit up and take notice. But I say to you, or this is important what I'm about to say, or listen up, that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus saying this is important. Every idle word. An idle word is a a careless word. It's not paying attention to what you just, what you're saying. It's not really paying, it's just you're throwing things out and not really paying attention to how you say it and what you say. Those are idle words. The Pharisees remember I shared last week, they spoke too soon. When they tried to trap Jesus and then they tried to say, well, you know what? You just cast out this demon by Satan. They spoke too soon because Jesus came back with a response that actually stopped their mouths. They probably wish they didn't say it. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. How many of us here this morning, even just this week, have thought, man, I've said things this week that were really careless words. You know how we get those things right? We just say, Lord, forgive me. God, cleanse me, forgive me. Lord, I was just quick to speak and to say, and, and God forgives. And we move on and we grow. Jesus is not saying that words are the only thing that we're going to be judged with. It's not just our tongue that we will be judged by. We'll be judged even by our actions. But remember that it's the heart of man that produces the actions. It's what's in our hearts. We have two other cases of opposition in this chapter. Uh, The first was the scribes and the Pharisees uh, that are, they're now asking Jesus for a sign. 
Get your head around this. Here's these Pharisees in this multitude of people around Jesus. They just witnessed this miracle. And now they're saying, we need a sign. You need to prove to us who you are claiming to be right now. In John chapter 20, verse 31, another uh, uh, one of the Gospels speaks about the many signs that Jesus did in his ministry. John writes, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John was written. And the signs and the seven miracles that are listed in the Gospel of John are given there pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And he did many other signs that were not written even in this book. Actually, if you look throughout the Gospels, there's actually only 37 specific miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels. But we know that Jesus did many miracles that were not recorded. We read in John 21, 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. That's what it says of all the things that the Lord had done, the miracles, the signs, and they were all for the purpose appointing people to the truth that he was, in fact, the coming Messiah. Now, a sign and a miracle are very similar. A miracle is typically something that is done on earth. A sign is something that the Jews, they would have thought as a sign of something in the heavens, something coming down that would show them, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are who you claim to be. That's what they were asking Jesus for. Give us a sign. And we know that because they had already witnessed the miracles. They just witnessed a miracle. Was that not enough? And here they are saying, no, show us a sign. We need a sign. They just attributed his healing to Satan. Now we need a sign from you. Show us a sign. Keep in mind, though, that as they're asking this question, they're requesting something of him, but they're requesting it with hearts of unbelief. That's important to note. They're not just asking it like an honest question. Would you give us a sign to prove that? No, they're asking out of hearts of unbelief that are saying, show us a sign. You claim to be the Messiah, then give us a sign to prove it. You know, in other words, that miracle that you just did or all these miracles, not enough. We need a sign from heaven. We need something to actually prove this. Verse 38, look at your Bibles. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here again, Jesus puts words right out there. They knew of Jonah. They knew of Jonah going into Nineveh. 
They knew of Jonah going in and preaching. And remember, this is a pagan Gentile Nineveh. Here's these religious men, the children of God, standing in front of, of Jesus, this teacher, asking for a sign. And he says, you know what? There's no sign given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That was his response to them. Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel also give us a little more insight into what was happening here because it says that they were testing him. They were actually testing. Now, do you think Jesus knew that? He knows their hearts. They were testing him by asking him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus never caters to that because he knows man's hearts. Jesus' response to the request in verse 39 was not what they expected. They didn't get what they wanted and what they expected. He says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. (laughs) You're the ones who should know who I am. You're the ones that have the Holy Scriptures. You should know. And because of this, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah that's already been given. Man, start thinking about what happened there in Nineveh. For Jonah was, verse 40, for Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Now keep in mind that Jesus has not yet died on the cross. He has not yet been laid in the tomb. He's speaking prophetically of what was going to transpire in him. But he's saying, you just need to look back to the prophet Jonah. There's your sign. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. So the Son of Man is going to be three days in the heart of the earth. I'm sure that many of them on that day, after the resurrection, had to have been thinking of these things. Jesus says... Jonah himself was a sign. The sign given to them by Jonah was that Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of this fish. Remember, you know, Jesus, he has a way of getting right down to the issues of the heart. And that's what we're talking about. And that's what he's trying to do with these Pharisees. Getting to the issue of why they're asking. They're out to test him. He's not going to cater to that. But he's going to bring it out and point them back to what they must do. Then look to the prophet Jonah if you want a sign. The men of Nineveh, verse 41, these pagan Gentiles, Jonah preached to them. But it says that they will rise up in the judgment with this generation. Listen to what Jesus is saying to them here. They're going to, these pagan Gentiles... In the judgment day, they're going to rise up with this generation and condemn it. That's pretty strong. Just think of the religious Pharisees hearing that, how they would have responded. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then Jesus says this, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. I'm standing right in front. You asked me for a sign? I'm standing right in front of you now. One greater than Jonah is standing right before you. 
By implication, Jesus is saying to them, you have not acted much different than those of Nineveh when they first rejected the, mo- uh, the message of Jonah. You're, you're, they, you're doing the same thing. The Ninevites, these Gentiles, though they first rejected Jonah's message, they did come to repentance. And they will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. I don't know what that looks like or exactly how that will be worked out. But I think the implication is here, those that have repented, they will be your judges. Jesus says, and indeed you have someone greater standing before you than Jonah. He goes on to give it a similar thing by saying the queen of the south in verse 42, or the queen of Sheba, you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 10, will rise up in the judgment with this generation, again, he's pointing it to them, and condemn it. Well, why does he bring out the queen of the south? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. She went searching. The, all, she, she came from great distance and brought all of her riches. Why? Because she wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Went to great lengths. But what about you Pharisees? There's one standing greater than her right before you. You don't come seeking. You come testing. You come with a heart of unbelief. Jesus tells them that there's one greater than Solomon that is standing before you. That in itself, to the ears of these Pharisees to hear those words, would have rang loudly. Jesus is saying to them, a sign has already been given and you do not believe. It's already been given. I shared last week about these Pharisees and their hearts being set on unbelief. You see, a person's heart can get to the point where God will not always strive with the heart of man. He'll turn them over to their vile affections. He'll let them go. Not because he wants to, because God loves the world. He loves every soul and every human being. But there comes a point of unbelief where a person just comes to that point where it it doesn't matter what you show me. You show me ten signs. You raise ten people from the dead in front of me, and I still won't believe. I'll attribute it to everything else. I won't believe. You see, nobody comes to God unless the Holy Spirit draws. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, but even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, people that stand in unbelief, Blinders on. 
I can't see spiritually. Everything you're telling me, I don't know. I, I don't see it. We pray for those people. God, remove the blinders so that God, when they hear the gospel or somebody goes and shares with them, those for that very moment, those blinders might be removed just for an instant that they might hear the truth and they might believe. If the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And if you stand in unbelief, then the veil remains. doesn't matter what you show me. Show me miracle, show me a sign, I'm not going to believe. That's what Jesus was contending with, with these hearts. Jesus then warns them, and we're drawing close to an end here. He warns them about the dangers of their rejection. He says in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, so that it so that it will also be with the wick, this wicked generation. And again, he calls them out as this wicked generation. I believe that in their rejection and in this heart of unbelief, when they refuse to believe and they continue to reject and they continue to push the truth away, that every time a person does that, something worse comes upon them. It's like a person just continuing to say no to the gospel. And their heart gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And that, I believe, is the implications that Jesus is talking about here. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, when a person hears the voice of God, the Spirit of God upon their heart, they need to respond. Because every time we reject... And, you know, we know people like that. They, they, you know, they reject, they reject, and it seems like their, their lives just get worse and worse and more debauchery and more, and, and they just go down this path. Charles Spurgeon wrote concerning this section, he said, a demon can only inhabit someone if he finds it empty. Understand this, that if you're a born-again Christian, demons can't come in you. Only if he finds it empty, that is, without the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ. If it is empty, it does not matter to the demon. If it is also swept and put in order, the devil has no objection to a house being swept and garnished. For a moralist may be as truly his slave as the man of the debauched habits. So long as the heart is not accompanied by his great foe, he can use the man for his own purposes. The adversary of souls will let him reform as much as he pleases. You see that? I mean, Satan's not concerned if we want to play religion. If we want to sweep the house, look at, you know, keep it all in order, look real good and put together on there, he's all right with that. As long as we don't invite God's Spirit to come and dwell in us and become born again and be a child of God, you see, when that happens, he's lost the battle. Until then, he has free reign to whatever he wants to do. Go do what you want. I'm happy with that. Play religion. 
we finish this chapter, verses 46 to 50. It reads that while Jesus was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers, they stood outside seeking to speak with Jesus. And then one of them said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and he said to one who told him, Who is my mother and who is my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Quite the contrast between these religious Pharisees that were calling for a sign, wanting to come around, you know, and, and putting Jesus into a place, trying to test him. And then here's this person that's on the, you know, look, your mother, you know, thinking that he's going to respond with some kind of favoritism towards his family members. And Jesus' response was, Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Well, the ones that are my mother, my brothers are are those that are my disciples, those of you that are following after me. There's no favoritism. They're all those that have come to put their faith in Jesus Christ, those that are true disciples of Jesus Christ. They're my brother. They're my mother. We're all family. Quite the contrast. 